Um, I'm going to split it up, and I'm going to read 1 to 11, and then talk about that for a prolonged time. And then I'll read 12 to the end, and talk about that far more quickly. Um, but if you want to find the book at 10, if you have a Burgundy Bible, it's page, or it starts on page 110. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle, Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt. Do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, or the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did, as Moses said. And the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. We'll read the second half in a bit. There's a, there's a theme um, within the Bible, within the scriptures, that seems to run right through. I, I find it slightly terrifying, it's this. It's that those who are privileged with a proximity to God will be judged more harshly. Jesus puts it in Luke 12, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That is, if you are privileged and blessed by God, we have to use what he gives us well. It's a stark warning, it seems to me it's not just there for individuals, but it's there for the people of God as a whole, which is why in the Old Testament you will see the Lord's discipline of covenant curses falling upon his people. Leviticus, Leviticus 26, 28. It's as if God says, I've revealed my law to you, I've revealed myself to you. Now if you walk away from me and you walk away from life, you will know the consequences of that. You will feel my discipline. That's then worked out in real time as they help into exile. They are judged before the Babylonians are judged even. Well, you're you see, the people of God are unable to claim an ignorance about God. Or fast forward to the New Testament, think of Peter as he wrote his first letter. He picked up this idea that these real hardships this church is going through, he was writing to, or churches, and he sees them in a sense as coming from the hand of the Lord. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household, Peter says. Chapter 4, verse 17. I think it's striking as well, actually, if you look back in church history, I, I wonder if you see it there too. I wonder if you see it, for example, amongst some of the revivals that you can read of. 
it seems to me, before a, a huge and unusual movement of the Lord happens, before he blesses his church in an extraordinary way, the people of God are refined first. There's a crying out to the Lord, there's confession. Where there's been secret sin, it's brought out into the open, repentance is seen, where the church has been lukewarm, hard-hearted, it Lord brings a conviction. It leads to repentance, to transformation, to change lives. <coughs> So with individuals as well, both the New Covenant and the Old, they think of James 3 verse 1, famously, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because we know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I think in a sense that's something of what we see here in this passage to Ephesians. In Leviticus 10 we see two men with huge privilege, they knew lots about God, they knew what their role was, and they decide to ignore that, and to do what they want, and they face the consequences for it. That, that seems to be what is coming from the mouth of Moses in verse 3, where he says, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. seems to be saying that the closer a person is to God in one sense, the, the more attention they must pay to the Lord's glory. The sight of all the people will be looking at them. The one who approaches God tells a story to the rest of the people. Those people see something of, of the Lord in his priests who have been anointed and set apart for him. The priests represent him in some sense. In his leaders who will embody him, you see that later on, the kingdom established. Now the priests behave matters. Which is why we read in verse 2 the shocking fact that Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord. And we say, well what did they do? Why did they do it? Why did it matter so much? What's going on here? And they're great questions. I'll see if we can unpack them slightly, but there's a level of mystery, different theories and different ideas that I'll let you know about, but there is a level of mystery to it. In one sense, I think we're just meant to trust the Lord in this. Um, But have a look down, have a look to what we were with last week, or some of the verses from last week, if you were here, 9 verse 22. Um, let me read 9 verse 22 onwards. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them, and having sacrificed the sin offering, he burnt the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went to the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down, and then Aaron's sons made up and the put their senses put fire in them and added and we're meant to feel the change in flows like this. Do you remember last week, chapters 8 and 9, we saw again and again and again, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Chapter 8, he's carefully given all these instructions and ingredients and processes, and what they're to do and how they're to do it, and, and then Moses actions them in chapter 9. So the Lord gave the order, the people obeyed. And at the end of chapter 9 we see Aaron the high priest established as high priest able to perform the necessary sacrifices to deal with the sin of the people to make it possible for a good God and not good people to be friends, to be together. And the priest that has been set up and they've done it bit by bit by bit and they've come as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded and we finish with real relationship, the glory of the Lord. The Lord sends fire, he consumes the sacrifices, job done, it works, humility, joy. It's amazing that there's party time, proverbially, 
They shout for joy. They fall face down. And actually then, when we reach verse 1, we ought to be a bit twitchy because suddenly the, the story has changed. The pattern has changed. 8 and 9, it was all, God said this, and they did it. And God said this, and they did it. And suddenly, Nadab and Abihu on the scene. There's no God said do this, and they did it. Our radar ought to be a bit twitchy at verse 1. We learn about these guys um, back in Exodus 6, still in slavery in Egypt. We learn the details of Aaron's family there. 6 verse 23, he had four sons. Now, these are the two eldest. He's got two more, Eleazar and Ithama. But Nadab and Abihu are there, 10 verse 1, taking censers, putting fire in them, adding incense. And it may be something that they were allowed to do. Back in 8 verse 30 from last week. <coughs> We read that his sons were anointed, they and their garments were sprinkled and consecrated. So, to a casual observer, it may seem fine. But if we're reading through 9 and then to 10, they walk onto the stage, no introduction. And it's a gear change, it it disrupts the flow of the text. We're meant to spot that. Something doesn't quite smell right, and we've not even smelt the incense. And the verse continues. Different translations will have slightly different ways of putting it. They offered unauthorised, some other translations that would be strange, fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And we say, well, what is this unauthorised fire? And we would love to know. Clearly, we know it's unauthorised, we know it's contrary to his commands. Again, that jars, because all the way through 8 and 9, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, and suddenly, not as the Lord commands. And we know it's going to be serious. But we don't know exactly what they did wrong, specifically, or why they did it. There are various theories as to what they did. If you want to scribble it down or look at it quickly, we're at Exodus 30, verse 9, speaking about the altar of incense. Do not offer on this altar any other unauthorised incense. the same word. So back in Exodus we're told not to do this. So it could be that. Simply, it's against the Lord's command. It's the wrong kind of incense, but it's not as he said it ought to be. We can't just approach God on our own terms. There is no room for creativity. It could be that. It could be this as well. There's another option, and that is, if you remember, as Dave's been teaching us about Leviticus, we have seen that the heart of Leviticus is chapter 16, there the comes. And actually what's interesting is that Chapter 16 comes out of chapter 10. If you flick over to 16 verse 1, I think we'll be there in a couple of weeks. Have a look at the first couple of verses with me then. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So you wonder if there's an implication there that what they've done is that they did approach the Lord. They did go behind the curtain. They went to the place that only Aaron should have gone to. Which is striking, because that then means that in one sense the Day of Atonement is a, an annual, year by year, reset of the system. It's wiping the slate clean again. It's, it's rebooting the sacrificial system is getting us back to the end of chapter 9 again. 
We get at chapter 9 with the high points. High priest in place, rejoicing and joy, and then 10 verse 1 and 2, and we've already ruined it. Which means if 10 and, chapter 10 and 16 are linked, then the Day of Atonement is a, is a reboot for the tabernacle and the priesthood and everything. Getting back to the clean high point of end of chapter 9. Why did they do it, we say? Can you really know? They are clearly culpable and judged for it. Immediately it was wrong. They faced the Lord's justice like that. Why did they do it? Um, well, some think that 8 verse um, sorry, verses 8 to 11 are helpful here. Um, let me read them again for us. Why did they do it? Well, it's striking the Lord says this. And the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go to the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. So, question mark, is the implication that Nadab and Abihu had been drinking? before they went in, and that was why they went in. Because it's an unusual thing for him to say at this point, isn't it? It feels slightly kind of out of place. Is that why they sort of offered unauthorised fire? Is that why the Lord institutes these verses here? Maybe. Some commentators are persuaded. Was it sort of drunken death? Their boys night out, and it just sort of spiralled and all went wrong? Were they not thinking clearly? Maybe. Regardless of the answer, the outcome is swift. So, so fire came up from the presence of the Lord. Verse 2. And consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now we can't say in one sense that it's just ignorance, because it wasn't as if they didn't know what the Lord is like. If you track them back, they had been invited by the Lord up Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, they are named by the Lord, as Moses goes. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance. Which is interesting then, because some people say, well, maybe it's not the alcohol thing, maybe it's the pride thing. A number of Jewish scholars extrapolate or hypothesise. Um, they say, well, maybe this pride, if they were able to go up the mount, it meant that they entered the tent by themselves with their unauthorised fire. Privilege leads to pride. Maybe their dad was given a more prominent place. And they would show him, and they would show everyone else how important they were, and that was why they went in, but it all goes horribly wrong. Again, not sure. But it's interesting. They were clearly privileged. They clearly had, had seen the Lord in some sense. And yet it goes wrong. It is, it's a sad reversal of the end of chapter 9. The end of 9 we saw God's blessing and pleasure and shouts of joy. And yet three verses later it's God's justice and anger and, and silence from Aaron, verse 3. And more. It, it feels like, it feels like Ten Commandments and Golden Calf all over again. It feels like the height of God revealing himself and then God's people getting it to very wrong very quickly. 
This is what happens when you approach the God of the Bible and all spirit, rather than his tenets. I think at that point we need to just press pause and remember that God has to deal with sin. We, we are simply unable to approach him on our own terms. If we're believers here up this evening, or if we've been here in previous weeks, we, we know the answer, I take it. We know that we go to God through Jesus on the cross. He died, he took God's right anger against his people's sin upon himself. A huge temple curtain that was torn in two, access available to all, friendship with God possible. Jesus takes God's righteous anger upon himself. His death that we might have life. We have this perfect high priest who makes a perfect sacrifice, which works for all time. And if you're a believer here, thinking, oh, I reckon you can probably tick that doctrinal box all day long. You know that. But the thing that struck me this week in pre- preparing for this is what we have here is a stark, incredibly stark visual image of the way God feels if we try to approach him on our own terms. If we seek to bypass the cross, this is something of how God feels about it. And we say, well how do we do that? Well isn't it that constant pull of our hearts towards self? It's when we come to church thinking who I am or what I've done or my track record of service or the kind of week I've had this week and the number of quiet times I've done or whatever it is, whatever the, the way we sort of notch up reward points in our minds. I've kept my nose pretty clean. If we approach God on our own terms that are not his terms then look at Nadab and Abihu and realise something of how God feels about it. That's pretty stark, isn't it? He gives us this image of what it's like to approach him on our own terms. To paraphrase Mr. Beaver from C.S. Lewis's Narnia books. He is good, but he is not safe. It ought to it ought to guard us against thinking that sin is a small and trifling thing. Because we look at Nadab and Abihu and we realise how God feels about it. And so we will give thanks to, to our Father in Heaven, to the Lord Jesus, as we respond, as we sing, as we praise Him. The one who was judged in our place, the one who was consumed by the Lord's anger for sins that were not His but were ours. And I could say more, but I'm aware of time. So we will scuffle through the rest of the passage quite quickly. What happens essentially is that we revert back to the, to the old pattern again. Once Nadab and Abihu have died. So suddenly then, God commands Moses to do something and the people obey. And yet the problem is, we have two dead bodies on our hands and priests are not allowed to touch dead bodies you can find that in chapter 21, which means that he finds their cousins to, to remove the bodies. And it's poignant in verse 5, isn't it? Did you spot that? I read it before. 
that their priestly robes, which will have acted as a uniform that brings, sort of brought some sort of relationship in life, suddenly these tunics are now um, shrouds covering for dead bodies. And then they are removed and taken to the place of uncleanness. They are taken outside the camp. Verse 6 to 7 then. Moses speaks to Aaron and his remaining two sons, Eleazar and Hitharma. They are not to mourn Nadab and Abihu. That's the hair unkempt and clothes torn thing. That's not just sort of youth culture in those days. It's actually them mourning. Um, why can't they mourn their, their family, we say? That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Actually, what's unusual is, is that Aaron's two other sons aren't allowed to mourn. It's, it's usual for the high priest not to mourn in that way. Why can they not mourn their family? I think it's foundation they need to, to show that they belong to the Lord, that their allegiance is with Him first. And particularly, this was not a natural death. It was a death because they were judged by God. And if the high priest and his sons are mourning and crying out to the Lord and grieving, well, maybe then they're going to be tempted to see it as the Lord's fault, to blame Him. It's this picture of total dedication to the Lord here, totally set apart to Him, even sometimes against your family. And then 8 to 11, this banning of alcohol now. And yet, what's actually more important than that, and we, we miss this, is there in verse 8. Then the Lord says to Aaron, Here God speaks to Aaron. That is the only time in Leviticus where there is no Moses and the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. Which means he is still high priest. It means despite his sons, despite all that's happened, Aaron and his two younger sons still have their job and they get on with their job. As if the Lord is saying, I don't exclude you. I'm going to keep going with you. And we think, let's finish the passage there. Sacrifices start. Then let me read the next bit. Verse 12. Moses had said to Aaron and his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithama, take the grain offering left over from the food offering, prepare without yeast, and present it to the Lord, and eat it beside the altar, for it is most holy. Eat in the sanctuary area, because it is your share and your son's share of the food offerings presented to the Lord, for so I have been commanded. But you and your sons and your daughters may eat the breast that was weighed and the thigh that was presented, eat them in a ceremonially clean place. They have been given to you and your children as your share of the Israelites' fellowship offering. The thigh that was presented and the breast that was weighed must be brought with the fat portions of the food offerings to be weighed before the Lord as a wave offering. This will be the perpetual share for you and your children as the Lord commanded. Business as usual. But then not verse 16, when Moses inquired about the goat of the sin offering and found that it had been burned, he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and asked, why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? It is most holy, it was given to you. Take away the guilt of the community by making atonement for them by the Lord, before the Lord. Since its blood was not taken to the holy place, you should have eaten the goat in the sanctuary area as I commanded. Oh no. Can you imagine the first reading it? Aaron and his sons, they disobeyed as well. He's going to wipe out the family. He's not eaten the remainder of the sin offering as he was commanded to. But then the chapter ends. 
Maybe in a way we weren't expecting, Aaron replied to Moses, Today they sacrificed their sin offering and their burnt offerings before the Lord. But such things as this has happened to us. Would the Lord have been pleased if I had eaten the sin offering today? When Moses heard this, he was satisfied. Which is interesting, isn't it? So on the one hand, they've got it right. They have presented purification offerings, burnt offerings as they were meant to. But then they've got it wrong as well, because they were meant to eat the remains of the goat, the sin offering in the sanctuary area, and they hadn't been obedient. And why have they not done that? Again, it's not quite clear. We, we just don't know. Later on in the law, we read that these meals were to be eaten joyfully. And Aaron says, would the Lord have been pleased if I had eaten the sin offering today? Maybe he can deal with not mourning for his boys, or his sons can deal with not mourning for their brothers, but, but having to rejoice as well. And so rather than get it wrong, he simply avoids the situation. He doesn't eat. And Moses... Well, presumably he sees God has not judged Aaron, and presumably the answer makes sense, and so he's happy with it. You think, does God have double standards here? It seems to say to me that God is happier when we make a mistake out of fear of him, rather than making a mistake out of stupidity, or foolishness, or drunkenness, or whatever it was for Nadab and Abihu. The point of the passage is clear. And it's the point that we started with. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And for the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. These two priests, the sons of the high priest, approached God on their own terms, despite all that they knew, despite their privilege, despite their position. And they feel the punishment of God for that. What we do with what we've been given matters. And at about this point, the danger for us as, as New Covenant believers, as we were thinking about this morning, is that we can go one of two ways. In fact, right the way through Leviticus. Either we say, wow, God is extraordinarily holy. He is so good. He is so pure. Look at all the stuff he demands. And we always set up our own little equivalent sacrificial system. And we beat ourselves up trying to deserve friendship with him. Trying to earn our way back to forgiveness. Trying to do just enough that, that he will be prepared to, to perhaps just be friends with us a bit. Maybe kind of adopt us a little bit. Because we see how holy and pure he is. Or we go the other way and we go... We have a a great high priest, we have a perfect sacrifice, we have all the access we've ever wanted. Forgiveness is ours, it doesn't really matter how I behave in it, really. Of course it doesn't, because I'm forgiven. God's job. He has to. And of course, neither extreme is right. We don't need to sacrifice on this side, because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for us. And his blood is sufficient. And he is kind and he is good. And we are joined to him by faith. But, but we do need to live a holy life because God is holy. And I think in accounts like this show us how holy he is. How much in a sense our sin matters. When we get a glimpse of what it looks like to approach him on our terms, then 
We're meant to have that awe and that reverence and that holy fear. It's why as we began our time together as well, often judgment, refining, purification does seem, I think, to begin with the household of God first. And he burns away the dross and he purifies us and he sanctifies us and he changes us more into the likeness of Jesus. And the church that he's left with is far more distinctive. It looks far less like the world. And so useful to him. Attractive to a cynical watching world. And of course this passage is, I think, particularly relevant for those in positions of responsibility. I'd say this sermon written this week was under the shadow of another friend in ministry who failed this last week and burned his wealth off. And so let me encourage you, please, if you are not in leadership, or even if you are, this is hard to get right, so please do pray for your leaders. Pray for us as elders, pray for those on the staff team, pray for our life and our witness, pray that our hearts would not be led astray, pray for us as shepherds within an imperfect sense. We might represent the chief shepherd. It's a stark passage. But everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we get just a, a, perhaps a fresh glimpse of your holiness in this passage. We see something of, of what you're like, of your purity, of your goodness, your righteousness, your justice, and the reality of our own sin. And so we come before you thank you for the, thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it is through him that we approach you. Thank you that it is through him that we can know you. Thank you that in him we have forgiveness of sins. In him we are cleansed. In him we are adopted and redeemed, made righteous in your sight. And yet we're not finished in these bodies on this earth. And so we pray that you would help us to put to death the sinful nature, to put on Christ, to live for him. Guard us please from seeking to, in some sense, try and impress you by by the stuff that we do or approaching you on our own terms or the things that we, we think you will be impressed by. Help us to remember we bring nothing to you but our sin and our need of forgiveness. And yet we thank you that you are the God who, who is gracious and kind, who, who gives people second chances, even people like Aaron and his sons who, who still disobey. Thank you that you give us second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Thank you that you are you are loving and kind. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Amen.